I will be returning to Matthew's Gospel, Lord willing, next, next week, but would ask today that you turn in your Bibles to the 85th Psalm. Psalm 85. Let us bow in prayer before reading. O Father, may the Holy Spirit, who has been poured out by the ascended Christ upon his church, now fill the one who expounds your word and preaches your truth, that it may, with your blessing, enter every heart and change and transform us and conform us to the image of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. The 85th Psalm. This is the Word of God. To the choir master, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord. And grant us your salvation. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak. For he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him. That glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground, and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good, and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. The Lord has placed upon my heart a continual desire to bend the knee and ask that he send revival to his church in our country throughout our land and in other places in the world as well. I have been asking in morning, evening services, in Wednesday evening services, and in private conversations that you, God's people, join with me in that prayer for revival. But there is a need to define the word revival. If I'm going to ask you to pray for revival, it's necessary that you understand what I mean when I ask that you pray for revival in the church and in our land today. The word has been hijacked about the the middle of the 19th century. The word was hijacked, and it's never really been restored in the minds of most Christians in its proper biblical understanding. We want to do that today. Now, it's rare that I preach a sermon that is topical, very, very rare. When I do it, there is a good reason for it. There is a pastoral reason for it. And so today, even though we will be anchored in this 85th Psalm, I'm veering in the direction of the topical, most unusual, but on occasion I think it's a a right thing to do. 
Now, this 85th Psalm that we have read together addresses some bleak situation. We don't know precisely what, but in the first three verses of Psalm 85, the psalmist recalls God's prior mercies. In verses 4 through 7, he speaks of the present estrangement of the people from God. In verses 8 and 9, hearing God's answer of peace and promise is emphasized. And in verses 10 through 13, the anticipated blessings based upon the character of Almighty God is stressed. So let's keep that psalm in our minds as we move forward. The first thing I want to say, the first point is our present situation. Our present situation. Like the psalmist, we can look back on prior mercies in the church in our land. Look at these first verses. Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. He looks back and he says, this was true. This is what you did for your land and this is what you did for your people in the past. Oh, what blessing has attended the preaching of the word of God at various times in the history of the church of Jesus Christ in our country, in our land. But we also can see present estrangement from God. We need God's intervention. We need God's promise. We need God's blessing. Do you doubt the need for revival? We are far, far removed from where our fathers were in doctrine and in life and in piety and in example. I was grieved recently to receive in the mail some church adverts. I would have been embarrassed to bring them into the pulpit this morning and hold them up to you. They were trite, silly, worldly, and frivolous. And yet when I go to the book of Acts, when I find those joyful people in the book of Acts, I also find that when the word of God was preached in the second chapter of the book of Acts, that those who heard were cut to the heart. When I go on to the fifth chapter of the book of Acts, I find after the death of Ananias and Sapphira, Sapphira, great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Permeating the early church, you cannot miss it when you read the book of Acts, permeating the early church, joy, fear, but a seriousness about the things of God. The matters of eternity were always weighty. They were always, always, always heavy. There was a sense of gravitas in the early church that is lacking, by and large, in the church in our country today. We need revival in doctrine. Today we have, I'm talking about basic fundamental doctrine. Doctrine such as the substitutionary atonement of Christ no longer preached in pulpits that once preached substitutionary atonement, but now preached the opposite. Doctrines such as justification by grace alone, through faith alone, through the work of Christ alone. These great doctrines rediscovered in the Protestant Reformation in many, many churches no longer preached. We need doctrinal revival. We need church revival and reformation. Worship that is filled with a sense of God, that is God-centered You know, when you read the accounts, as I have lately, I've been going back and reading account after account after account of biblical revival in the church throughout the ages, and there is one word that continues to pop off the page no matter where I find myself in history. It's the word solemnity. Solemnity. 
that solemn sense of the presence of Almighty God that was present in the church in days gone by that is so lacking in the church today. We need a revival of biblical worship. We need a revival, a restoration of biblical discipline in the church of Jesus Christ today. We need a revival of the Christian life today. In 1 Peter, we read in the second chapter of how godly people lived in the first century. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. But today there's very little concern for holiness of life and living a godly life from the heart out before a watching world. I do not say it is not present. I do not say that I do not see it. But I do say that it is radically eclipsed in the church today. We need doctrinal revival. We need church revival. We need Christian life revival. Do we not need to get up on our knees and anguish for the church before the living God today? Which is what the psalmist does in verses 4 through 7. Restore us again, he pleads, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. That is our present situation. Second thing, we need to define revival. If this is our need... We need to define revival. If your pastor is saying, pray with me for this revival. If the psalmist says, will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? What do we mean by revival? It's quite simple. Revival is an extraordinary degree of blessing on the ordinary means of grace. We don't bring in new measures, new means. God has ordained word and sacrament and prayer And we pray for an extraordinary blessing upon the ordinary means of grace. Basically, it is hearing God afresh. Look again at verses 8 and 9. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak. For he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. And so revival is an unusual degree of blessing, the power of God's grace convincing and converting sinners, increasing the piety of true believers, but an extraordinary blessing upon the ordinary means that God always uses, word and prayer. Samuel Davies, our great Presbyterian forefather, says that revival is a large outpouring of God's Spirit producing a public general reformation. And tell me if we do not need that. Now, I think it's important for us to distinguish revival from revivalism. I've heard Jonathan Edwards and Charles Grandison Finney spoken of in the same sentence, as if they believed both of them in revival in the same way, but they did not. Jonathan Edwards was a Calvinist. Charles G. Finney was an Arminian. Jonathan Edwards believed divine sovereignty in the salvation of sinners. Charles G. Finney believed that salvation was through the human merit and effort of free will. Jonathan Edwards believed that revival was a sovereign work of God. 
Charles G. Finney believed that revival was produced by human means. Jonathan Edwards believed that we had to depend upon God to send revival. Charles G. Finney believed that you use the right technique and you'll have revival. Edwards believed that truth was paramount in revival. Finney believed in working the crowd. Now, I'm not exaggerating. I've read Finney. What Finney says is, if you use the right scientific means, you're going to have a revival. You will produce it. And when those means no longer work, you just choose other means to bring it. That's where the whole invitation system came from, drawing people down the aisle into the anxious bench of which Bill Schweitzer spoke a few weeks ago at our missions conference. You see, the invitation is in the preaching. It is not something appended to it. We're not here to whip people's emotions up. Emotion should come from the heart as we know God and as we trust in his truth. So when most people speak of revival, they mean Charles G. Finney. When your pastors speak of revival, we mean Jonathan Edwards. Most people mean Finney. We mean not what man can produce, but what God alone can give. We cannot produce genuine revival. We can produce man-centered excitement, but we cannot produce genuine revival. We may long for revival, and we should. We may pray for revival, and we should. We may live consistently with revival, and we should. But we cannot produce it. We may come before the Lord and pray as does the psalmist, Restore us again, O God. Will you not revive us again? But we cannot produce revival. And so I am not saying let's have revival meetings and whip everybody up and put a sign outside with a a red uh, revival meeting. That is not what I mean. What I'm saying is let us... Use faithfully the only means that God has given for the building of his church, the word and prayer, and pray that extraordinary blessing will be poured out upon it. Are you doing that? Third thing. The third thing is this. Distinguishing marks of a work of the Spirit of God. Distinguishing marks of a work of the Spirit of God. Now some of you know that I'm quoting a title that was written by Jonathan Edwards, a treatise written by him in Time of Revival in the Great Awakening in New England. When he wrote The Distinguishing Marks of a Work of the Spirit of God, he based it upon 1 John 4.1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. You see, when there is true revival, there also is much wildfire. And so Edwards said, how can we distinguish the true from the false, the precious from the vile? How can we know what is true revival and what is not true revival? And to give you the bottom line, Edwards says these things. When esteem for Christ is heightened, there is true revival. When the spirits of it works against the interests of Satan's kingdom and works against our worldly lusts, there is genuine revival. When there is a greater regard for the Holy Scripture, there is genuine revival. When there is a spirit of truth, for instance, that God is a sin-hating God, that life is short, that we must give an account before God that we are helpless in ourselves, that our darkness is removed only by the sovereign grace of God, 
When these things are present, there is genuine revival. When there is love to God and man, a true Christian humility, a self-emptying and poverty of spirit seen in his church again, there is genuine revival. This does not come by human means, but we pray for the acceleration of blessing on the ordinary means of word, sacrament, and prayer. Fourth point, harbingers or precursors to general revival, genuine revival. What are the signs that God is accelerating this work of grace in the midst of his church? Accelerating his blessing on the ordinary means of grace. Well, let me give several signs to you that we find in every genuine revival in history. The Spirit of God gives new life and earnestness to our prayers. All revival is preceded by a genuine deep desire on the part of God's people to get upon our knees and to plead with him for blessing. Every revival is preceded by that. On the day of Pentecost, we find that that day was preceded with the disciples in the upper room praying. Another precursor, indicator, is the Spirit of God gives new unction to preaching. All revival is a revival of the preaching of the Word of God. And there's a new unction and power in preaching. Another indicator, the Spirit of God begins to remove the lukewarmness of our hearts and to renew our zeal before Him. Another indicator, the Spirit of God gives an intense, holy dissatisfaction with the darkness around us, and Christians separate from it and grow in holiness of life. Another indicator, the Spirit of God gives a renewed longing for the lost to come to Christ and for Christ's kingdom to prevail in the world. Again, the Spirit of God gives a deeper sense of brokenness among the people of God. Brokenness in our heart for the lost and the needy around us. Eternity with its overwhelming realities and solemnity presses in upon the people of God. When God is sending revival, the Spirit of God gives an insatiable hunger for spiritual things we just can't get enough. When God is sending revival... The Spirit of God makes worship beautiful. If you read about the Great Awakening and you read Jonathan Edwards' words, he speaks of the beauty of their worship services. He's not talking about externals. He's saying the Spirit of God was so there, so present, that the ordinances of God were blessed with such power that there was a a new and renewed beauty in worship for the people of God. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones put it this way, When God sends revival, you do not have to exhort people to come together for worship and to praise and to consider the word. They insist upon it. They come night after night and they stay for hours, even until the early hours of the morning. This will go on night after night for months, exactly as it happened at the beginning. He's talking about the early church. I've told my wife, Vicki, you pray with me for revival, but know what's coming. I'm going to be out. I'm going to be, it's going to be very, 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 very blessed and very, very, very exhausting. The Spirit of God sends in every revival. Listen to this. The Spirit of God sends in every revival a deep sense of conviction of sin. 
Ian Murray writes, all awakenings begin with the return of a profound conviction of sin. Indifference and carelessness, go. It's a giving of self to God. So how is it with us? Do you see those things at work in your heart? Increasingly at work in your life? Fifth point, revival and missions. Revival and missions. We just had our missions conference. Bill Schweitzer emphasized rightly to us the ordinary means of grace for the growth of the church. You know the greatest missions movement was the result of Puritan theology and Jonathan Edwards, one of the great Puritans, said this. It may be observed that from the fall of man to our day, the work of redemption in its effects has mainly been carried on by remarkable communications of the Spirit of God. Though there may be a constant influence of God's Spirit always in some degree attending His ordinances, yet the way in which the greatest things have been done towards carrying on this work always has been by the remarkable effusions at special seasons. Do you know what Edwards is saying? This work of missions, the carrying on of the preaching of the gospel, extending the borders of the kingdom, regularly in history happens as God sends powerful effusions of the work of the Holy Spirit and accelerates his blessing on the means of grace. Now the great missions movement, as I said, was the result of Puritan theology, and Puritan theology had two characteristics. Puritan theology was Calvinistic. And Puritan theology was evangelistic. Puritan Christianity was revival Christianity. It was characterized by a belief that the mission that Christ gave to his church would succeed. That there would be in this world, in this age, a general and widespread triumph of the gospel of Jesus Christ consummated by the return of Christ. And the upsurge of dispensationalism and Arminianism in the church have killed that emphasis in missions. What saith the scriptures? Listen to just a few of them from Psalm 2. Ask of me and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. Psalm 72. He shall have dominion from sea to sea and from the river unto the ends of the earth. All nations shall serve him. Isaiah, the 60th chapter. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your arising. Daniel 2.34 The stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Habakkuk 2.14 the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Well, you say, Pastor, that just doesn't fit my eschatological viewpoint. Well, listen to this from Isaiah 53. He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. Do you know what that verse means? It means that Christ redeemed a multitude which no man can number from every tongue, tribe, kindred, and nation on earth. And those redeemed by his precious blood, that multitude which no man can number, will 
be saved. That the mission that he has given to the church of Jesus Christ will succeed. Charles Spurgeon rightly said, we shall not labor well if we do not labor in hope. Let me ask you, what drove George Whitfield and his inexhaustible labors for Jesus Christ? What made Jonathan Edwards a burning evangelist for Jesus Christ? What drove David Brainerd kneeling in the snow praying for the lost to come to Jesus? What moved William Carey to go to India and to preach the gospel there? What motivated Charles Haddon Spurgeon as he preached the gospel in London? I will tell you what motivated them. He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. The mission that Christ has given to his people will succeed. He will save his own. And throughout history there have been these powerful effusions of the Spirit of God moving forward the work of God as he saves his elect. People of God, have you any idea how missions has been fostered through revival in history? We don't know our own history. Volumes have been written upon these things. We just don't know our own history, and that would encourage us when often we go about dejected. The mission given by the risen Christ will succeed, and when the church of Jesus Christ preaches the good news of Jesus Christ, the church of Jesus Christ is an army terrible with banners. All right? What am I talking about? In Cambuslang, near Glasgow, 1742, William McCulloch, says George Buchanan, was one of the first to be visited. After he had preached for about a year on the nature and necessity of regeneration, he was requested by about 90 families to give a weekly lecture, that is to have a midweek service. Prayer meetings were formed and one after another, and at length 50 in the same day came to him in distress of mind. After this, such was their thirst for the word of God that he had to provide for them a sermon almost daily. And before the arrival of George Whitfield, 300 souls had been converted in that little parish. When that eminent service servant of God preached at the sacrament soon after, there were present about 24 ministers and from 30 to 40,000 souls. 3,000 communicated at the tables, came for communion many of them from a great distance, who carried with them to their several homes a savor of good things, and not fewer than 400 belonging to the parish were enrolled in the minister's lists of having been converted that year. This was in a day when they were very careful about what they thought true conversion to be. In the same year in the parish of Kilseth, then under the pastoral care of James Robe, who had labored for 30 years without any remarkable success. 30 years in one place with no remarkable success in his ministry. Was visited first of all with a violent fever and afterwards with famine without any salutary effects. The minister was much discouraged but betook himself to prayer and soon some symptoms of growing seriousness appeared which rapidly ripened into a great spiritual revival Sometimes 30, sometimes 40 were awakened in a week. In all, there were about 300 whose subsequent life attested the sincerity of their 
conversion. Do you long for this? Do you long for this? Your minister longs for this. Awakening turned 18th century England around. Do you know around the year 1750, at St. Paul's Cathedral in London, do you know how many there were attending worship? Would you like to guess? 5,000? 1,000? 500? Six. Six people in the Easter service at St. Paul's Cathedral around the year 1750. That was the state of Christianity until God sent a powerful effusion of the Holy Spirit and raised up preachers like George Whitfield and William Romaine and William Grimshaw and others. Six people. Evan Roberts prayed for 14 years for revival in Wales, pleaded with God, and in 1904, he gave this simple message as he preached in the churches. This Calvinistic Methodist minister, part of that church in Wales, had four points that he brought to the churches. The four points were these. Confess all known sin. Two, deal with and get rid of anything doubtful in your life. Three, be ready to obey the Holy Spirit instantaneously. Four, confess Christ publicly. That's a good message, isn't it? Let me repeat it. Confess all known sin. Are you living that way, Christian? Lord, I know I'm justified by grace through faith, but as a child of God, I sin, and Lord, I confess daily my sins to you. Are you doing that? Two, deal with and get rid of anything doubtful in your life. I'm not sure if this would glorify the Lord or not. Get it out. Get it out. It doesn't belong. Thirdly, be ready to obey the Holy Spirit instantaneously. This is what God's Word says. I'm not going to wait, debate, argue. I'm going to do what God says. And fourthly, confess Christ publicly. From the inside out, I'm going to wear my Christianity so that everybody can see it. Good message. Is that true of you? Are you living that way? If you live that way, it's consistent with the longing for revival. If you live that way, it's simply how Christians should live. When Evan Roberts, this young man, preached this truth, 60 people were converted the first week. Within a year, 100,000 converts were added to the churches in Wales. And they were genuine converts. Pastor, how do you know? I will tell you. Because Wales began to be a God-fearing nation for an entire generation. Because the public houses were empty. You hear this, young people, those places that that people would go and they would just drink and while away their times, they were now empty. When revival comes, places like that often shut down. Men who wasted money on drink now cared for their families and loved them. Magistrates often came to court and found that there were no cases to adjudicate because there was no crime, because so many people had been converted. And get this, the pit ponies, the ponies down in the pits and the mines, no longer knew how to obey the commands of their newly converted masters because they weren't being cursed and sworn at anymore. Even the pit ponies were converted in the 1904 revival in Wales. People paid back borrowed money 
Men were honest in their businesses. Relationships were reconciled. Young people, Flory Evans simply said in her youth meeting that she loved Jesus her Lord with all her heart and God the Holy Spirit used her witness and it sparked a revival that covered the whole of West Wales. You don't believe God can do it? Look, it's stuck. You would ask a 70-year-old later, later and they would say, that revival still burns in my soul. Korea, 1907, Pyongyang. A lot of Presbyterian missionaries in Korea, William Blair among them. God sent this overwhelming desire on the part of the church to pray. And they began to pray. And there was confession of sin one to another. And revival began to spread. And we are told that that revival in 1907 preserved the purity of the Korean churches raised the ethical standard of the churches. There was a new zeal for evangelism. Thousands were converted, and it formed a tradition of powerful prayer that is still a part of the Korean Christian community to this day. And it prepared Korean Christians for severe persecution from the Japanese occupation of Korea from 1910 to 1945. I wonder if God should send revival if it also might prepare us for persecution in our land. Should we not pray? I'm just telling you a few of the thousands upon thousands of instances in which God has done this for his church. Should we not pray? Visit us with your almighty power. Look at our church today. Look at the church in the United States. Look at our country and all of its need. Oh, God, do it again. Oh, God, do it again. You say, Presbyterians pray like that? The Presbyterians really believe in revival? <clears throat> Methodist historian William Warren Sweet. Do you hear that? Methodist historian William Warren Sweet. I quote him. Most of the great American revival movements have come through the Presbyterians. Doesn't surprise me. I believe that solid revival can only happen in Calvinistic soil. We take our theology seriously when we're God-centered and not man-centered. Oh, how we need a climate in which Christ our Lord is known in his presence today in the church. Final point. But don't get too excited, it's a long one. (laughs) Final point, number six. Why we need revival. Let me give you two reasons. Well, two reasons, a lot of sub-points. We need revival first because we want to see God glorified in his attributes. Look at how the psalmist ends in Psalm 85. Beginning at verse 10, steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. You see, he has prayed in verse 6 for revival. Will you not revive us again? He comes to the end of the psalm and he focuses upon the character, the attributes of God. We wish to see revival because we believe it would honor Jesus Christ. It would honor the Lord. It would glorify His name. 
John J. Murray, British Presbyterian minister, wrote in the Banner of Truth some time ago. Now, he's talking about England. You can apply this to our country as well. Why do we need revival? Let me give you his reasons. Listen up. Number one, we have gone on so long without seeing a revival. There has been no major revival, that is to say in England, this century. He was talking about 20th century. 20th, 21st century, no major revival in our country either. Number two, there has been a great spiritual and moral decline in the land, and some areas are dark and almost pagan. Number three, the prevailing Christianity is powerless and the church has lost her credibility. Number four, deadness and formality and worldliness have taken hold of many congregations. Number five, true conviction of sin is lacking. The first work of the Spirit is to convict of sin, John 16, 8. Number six, The broken spirit and the contrite heart are rare. We do not mourn over our sins. Number seven, many of us have left our first love to the Lord Jesus Christ and lack warmth and fervency. Number eight, zeal for the glory of God is lacking and we are not grieved by the dishonor done to his name in church and nation. Number nine, We are not deeply moved by the sight of multitudes passing into eternity without Christ. Number ten, in many pulpits the true gospel is buried out of sight and sinners are flattered and encouraged in nominal Christianity. Number eleven, trust in the infallibility and inerrancy of the Bible has been undermined and the distinction between truth and error lost. Number 12, preaching is in decline, and there is a famine of the hearing of the Word of God. There is no great hunger for the Word. Number 13, there is widespread ignorance of the basic truths of the gospel and of the nature of Christian conversion. The doctrine of the new birth is watered down. Number 14, Evangelism has become centered on man and his need instead of on God and his glory. Number 15, the decay of family religion and family worship, the subversion of the family threatens the very fabric of society. Number 16, the decline in church attendance and the failure to retain the youth. Number 17, the neglect and desecration of the Lord's day. Number 18, the lack of any fear of God in our communities. There is open defiance of God and of His ways. Number 19, ignorance of what God has done for us in the past. Number 20, we are sinning against great light because God has so blessed this nation in the past. We should pray for revival because he 
is worthy. And so as we conclude, I'm asking you to pray. Pray for your ministers. Pray that there would be a flame of truth and a flame of evangelism that burns in our pulpit. And don't you dare let us come into the pulpit without being bathed in your prayers every week. Because it all ends with the lamb that was slain and with people who bow before him saying, I was lost, I was ruined, I was undone, I was estranged from God and he redeemed me with his precious blood. He wanted me. He bought me. He possesses me, and I am his forever. Charles Spurgeon said, O Spirit of God, bring back thy church to a belief in the gospel. Bring back her ministers to preach it once again with the Holy Ghost, and not striving after wit and learning. Then shall we see thine arm made bare, O God, in the eyes of all the people, and the myriad shall be brought to rally round the throne of God and the Lamb. The gospel must succeed. It shall succeed. It cannot be prevented from succeeding. A multitude that no man can number must be saved. And oh, my lost friend, as I've been preaching to God's people and calling them to faithfulness today, oh, my lost friend, I call to you. Jesus Christ came once into this world to die for sinners. He will come the second time to judge lost sinners. Dethrone yourself and enthrone Jesus where self has sat. Remove self that Christ may reign in your heart and give yourself over by faith to the blood-stained Jesus who alone can save us from our sins. And if you mean it from the heart, God's people said, Amen.